Marini's Media. Totally football show. Today, FA Cup final. Double whammy from Obami while Pulisic does his hammy. And the Blues see the biggest Zuma failure since you on your lockdown quiz. What will the cup win mean for Arteta's Arsenal? Will fears of Oba's departure prove as baseless as the trophy once he was through with it? Also today, we'll be talking about Eddie Howe as he takes a bow and says cheerio to the cherries. Newcastle, the same old story there. And the biggest game in football klaxon as Brentford take on Fulham in the Championship playoffs. All that in the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Listener, it's August the 3rd, and joining us on the Totally Football Show, we've got Michael Cox. Hi, Michael. Hi, James. Nice to see you. James Horncastle's with us as well, James. Good day to you. And indeed to you, sir. And it's a big hello to Raphael Honigstein. Hello. Nice. All right. Big week, this. Big week in football. As 11 months in the season finally gets interesting with FA Cup on, on Saturday and Champions League and Europa League coming up Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I'm excited. Pumped, James. I can't wait. Yeah. I think the real great thing that's going to happen over the next few few weeks is we're going to get a feel of what a European Super League looks like. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that, you know, where it's just the, the top teams in Europe playing every day, nonstop. This is what the future is going to be like. Right, well, we better get on with uh, getting our FA Cup final review out the way. Arsenal's 2-1 victory over Chelsea next. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson, part of The Athletic Podcast Network. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, make sure you check out their coverage of each and every Premier League club by taking out a free 30-day trial by heading to theathletic.com slash totally. Gunners Saturday at Wembley. Arsenal rallying from a goal down to win their 14th FA Cup for Arteta. It's a trophy in his first half season as manager for Arsenal. It's a place in Europe next season for Chelsea. Major questions about refereeing and a very lengthy injury list. Uh, Should we start with the shameful scenes at the end as Aubameyang threw the world's most venerable trophy on the ground like it was a a used NOS canister? (laughs) He dropped it like it's hot. He certainly did. And they told him, don't pick it up with the base. But yeah, anyway, (laughs) uh, we can forgive him that because it was an exquisite goal which proved the winning strike in this final. Yeah, sensational goal, Um, particularly because judging by his post-match interview, it was something that he had in mind uh, when he was going to go up against his former Saint-Étienne teammate, Kurt Zouma, yeah, Zuma apparently knowing that uh, Aubameyang, as most people do, likes to go on his right foot and just thinking, actually, I'm going to go on my left. Um, but still, um, close control, the ability to shift it, lift it, um, outstanding, really, from, I would say, Arsenal's only out-and-out sort of world-class player um, at this moment in time, since the decline of uh, Mesut Ozil, disappearance of Mesut Ozil. And again, just reinforces this idea that they need to hold on to players like that um, if they are to build and this project that Arteta has is going to flourish because at least the manager seemed optimistic um, yesterday that uh, he will be able to keep him. But it's moments like that um, that, uh, dare I say, in, in cliche terms, win football games and, mm. um, and Arsenal need guys like that. All right. Well, it literally did win this game and, and, and Zuma's moment, unfortunately exposed relentlessly by BT Sport on on, on social media because they played out the, 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 the goal with the original sound of uh, Kurt Zuma's teammates pulling out. <laughs> Football365 called this the most important result of Arsenal's recent history and a large part of that, I imagine, is because of the impact it might have on Aubameyang's future. Rafa, if he was going, it is such a short transfer window. Would we not have heard some whispers by now of his likely destination? Yeah, I think you're right, James. I think there is a real problem for players who want to go to one of the two big Spanish teams because they don't seem to have the finances available. And 
for all the very well documented ambitions from Aubameyang to go to Spain. I don't, I haven't seen any credible indications that either Real Madrid or Barcelona are indeed willing or able to to spend the kind of money that they'd need to get him a player who is also, in terms of resale value, of course, not your most um, appealing target. Yes, instant hit rate, instant goals, but uh, nothing to be really made two, three years down the line when perhaps you want to move on. Just a word on the recent history, I think, if anything, recent history has shown that FA Cups are not very important for Arsenal's travel because they haven't really told us much about where they're going. They've been very competitive in the FA Cup while continuously being less and less competitive where it really matters in the Premier League and in the Champions League. So I don't think Arteta needed that win necessarily to to suggest that Arsenal are going going to a better place. Um, I think it's a bonus. It'll help with team morale. I think it'll help the team find that bit of togetherness. But I don't think people's opinions very internally or externally about Teta would have changed much if he'd lost a game that they could have easily lost, I think, if things have fallen slightly differently throughout the 90 minutes. Arsenal weren't the better side, I think, but they managed to weather the storm. And I'm interested in Michael's opinion on this, but in my view, Ateta also won by basically saying, you know what, we can do all this beautiful football another day. We're just going to sit back and do what we did very successfully in some of the bigger games and since the restart and just play on the break. And to hell with the philosophy and all the passing and all that stuff. We'll go along, we'll expose them and it worked really well. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it was as defensive as, as we saw Arsenal against City and, and Liverpool in those two victories. But yeah, I agree with you in terms of they were much more direct than usual. I mean, almost their only approach really was getting the ball to David Luiz or, or Kieran Tierney and chipping it into the channel in behind Azpilicueta before he went off injured for either Aubameyang or Ainsley Maitland-Niles, who's had a real rejuvenation in the last month or so and I think was one of the key players here. Uh, I think it was also notable really that Frank Lampard struggled to adjust because that really was Chelsea's only problem in this game in, in terms of where Arsenal were exposing them and I was surprised that he didn't change things I mean if you think back to that Chelsea-Arsenal game or Arsenal-Chelsea game at the Emirates just after Christmas Lampard completely changed that game by moving from a 3-4-3 to a four-man defence and, and really that was what changed the game Arsenal were 1-0 up and Chelsea ended up winning 2-1 and it wasn't necessarily that he needed to change formation but I couldn't really see any attempt to change the game from Lampard. I thought even just moving Reese James back 20 metres to give Azpilicueta and then Zuma some proper help against Aubameyang um, would have been the obvious move. But in the end, it just felt like Chelsea were giving, as James says, probably the only world-class player on the pitch, too much space. And, and that caused both goals. The first one for the penalty, which Aubameyang won and then scored, and then for the uh, for the winner later on. Was there another world-class player on the pitch but who then went off having done his hamstring in, in the shape of Christian Pulisic. And, and was that one of the key moments? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think world-class will, will probably come when, he, uh, when he's been doing it, so to speak, for a few more years. But yeah, it, it was, I think, a huge blow to, to Chelsea. I mean, uh, he'd been so lively in the first 10 minutes in particular. And yeah, to, to go off, I think, two minutes into the second half was a big blow and... I also thought Azpilicueta going off was a blow, not just the fact that he went off, but the fact that Lampard maybe didn't elect to change things at that point. I thought that was a good opportunity maybe to bring on another central midfielder, but he went for as like for like as he could with, with Christensen on. So, yeah, in different ways, I think the injuries affected Chelsea. Rafa, when you say that you don't think that Arsenal were necessarily the better side in this game, were Chelsea just unlucky? No, it's not just about being unlucky. It's also about, um, from Arsenal's point of view, being very efficient, very clinical with your game plan. They had a game plan, as Michael said, that really worked. They managed to expose a Chelsea defence that had been struggling uh, before and, and we know that they have weaknesses. I think they also were quite smart by just inviting Chelsea forward. There were moments in uh, in the second half when it was still 1-1 where you had almost the entire Arsenal team camped around their, their box with just a bumming slightly sort of to the left being ready for, for the inevitable outlet that was going to come. And it worked really well. I think before that, especially in the, in the first half, Chelsea probably were the better footballing side, if that if that makes sense. And I think with Pulisic, they lost the ability to move between the lines. The first goal, well, the, the only goal that Chelsea scored, came all from uh, Pulisic being available and then taking the ball beautifully on the turn and then running 
at the Chelsea defence and total chaos ensued. And those kind of movements through the middle weren't as effective uh, without him. And they they showed all the, the issues that we've seen before. I think it had... It, it reminded me a little bit of the game against Bayern Munich in the Champions League where they played well at stages and they had nice possession and they had sort of good opportunities to create opportunities. But without possession, um, especially in transition they are very slow to flip the switch and take a long time to, to have any sort of defensive shape. And for teams who can expose that on the flanks, especially with pace, um, it explains, I think, why Chelsea have, have struggled to keep clean sheets and have conceded quite as many goals, despite all the progress that I think we should also mention and the good work that Lampard has done. This is still a very unfinished unfinished team but I think the same goes for goes for Arsenal if you look at their results and their performances I think they've been pretty uneven uh, despite a, a market improvement since lockdown and not quite as dramatic a an underdog victory if you will as a few years ago when they came up against uh, Contes at Chelsea but still um, a bit of a surprise and I think a welcome um, moment of happiness for Arsenal fans who haven't had too many of them in recent years. And any Chelsea haters who, who might have been watching as well. <laughs> Sorry, Michael. Yeah, no, I, I really agree with what Rafa says about the defensive transitions. I think that the second goal was a really good example of that. About 15 seconds before Aubameyang dinked it in, Rhys James was, was pressing uh, Kieran Tierney about 10 yards from the corner flag at the other end of the pitch. And by the time Aubameyang had scored, he hadn't come back into the picture again from the television footage. It wasn't necessarily... Rhys James's fault in fact I don't think it was his fault at all but the fact he was absolutely nowhere near in a position to to give any sort of uh, protection to the defence I think kind of summed up why uh, why Chelsea have conceded so many goals this season Rafi I mean as someone who is appearing on this call with a Kai Havertz mask and a Chelsea shirt with Havertz 10 on the back I know that they're obviously Pedro is is moving on Willian's expected to move on they need to fill gaps in that in, in those positions in the team but do you not think Chelsea could maybe, you know, having the 12th best defence in the Premier League this season would not be better served spending Havertz-style money on a centre-back. I, I completely agree. And that's why when Chelsea's interest um, for Havertz first kind of became, I don't want to say apparent, but we, we heard rumours about it back in in March, I think, or April, it seemed in Congress because you felt that Chelsea had other more important positions to fill first. But I think there is obviously a, a sense that he is too good a player to miss out on in a market where Chelsea are one of the very few teams who can push these kind of buttons, these 100 million euros, give or take buttons. So he might not be what they need right now, but he's certainly going to be a superstar if they do get him eventually. So I can understand the, the attraction. But yeah, it's not just it's not just, I think, the personnel, though. I think it's more to do with the organisation, with the collective approach. I mean, you look at Arsenal's back four and it doesn't necessarily strike you as the best in, in the Premier League either. But what Ateta has been able to do is get the whole team working a lot harder without the ball, making them a lot more compact and uh, you know finding ways to mitigate these issues. And I think that, that Lampard being concentrated more on the on the possession side and, and more trying to make Chelsea into a pressing team, very aggressive, high up the pitch. Similar to what Ateta's trying to do, but perhaps with less pragmatism and less patience, you might say, just needs to work a little bit harder on those on those issues. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a personnel decision, even though I would say that on the fullback positions or wingbacks, if you will, depending on the system, that Chelsea have been lacking a little bit recently and definitely need some strengthening in my view. Amongst other things, hampering Lampard's team in this game, though the sending off of Kovacic, which we should have a word on, uh, it was a pretty strange decision by Anthony Taylor and not helped at all by the, uh, well, play-acting of Granit Xhaka, though, after the challenge. I agree. I think I think Chelsea was slightly hard done by on, on a couple of incidents, actually. Um, albeit, I don't think it decided the game because I think Arsenal were the better side, but it... It did deny them the chance to to get back into it in the final twenty minutes. The only thing I'd say is that 
I thought Chelsea were also quite indisciplined. I mean, they conceded 12 or 13 fouls, I think, to Arsenal's two. And, I mean, the more you do concede fouls, the more there is a chance of uh, the referee being slightly harsh with the cards he shows. So, yeah, probably goes both ways. I mean, I think you have to sympathise with Chelsea to a certain extent because they lose the two players we mentioned, uh, Pulisic and Aspilicueta, who are important for different reasons. And Iluf Kovacic, who is maybe the one player that can provide a bit of glue between the attacking and the, and the, and the defending. And after that, you just didn't recover and you just get the sense that the game is completely slipping away from them. So in finals between teams that are fairly evenly balanced, you have three bad breaks effectively. It was just too much for Chelsea. Right. Yeah, no, Pulisic and Azpilicueta then as Chelsea prepare to face Bayern again at the end of this week. Started to think that their chances might not be too good of going through in, in that particular tie. Arsenal, meanwhile, celebrating wildly there in the locker room post-game. Uh, they are in Europe, continuing that 25-year run in continental competition. Uh, their victory also means that Spurs have to play three extra preliminary matches to get into the main body of the Europa League, so they'll be delighted about that. And a quick mention uh, for the fact that it was a really successful week for David Luiz, who A, didn't give away a penalty, and B, did you see also successfully sued uh, the Brazilian construction firm had run a campaign with the slogan don't hire amateurs to do a professional's job and used a picture of him from Brazil's 7-1 defeat to Germany in the 2014 World Cup and uh, he took them to court for defamation and won but he only, only got uh, £4,500 damages which suggests that you know his his reputation actually wasn't worth much anyway <laughs> still nice to get a win well, next up at Wembley, it is, of course, the playoff final on Tuesday. Bees against Cottagers, Tuesday night, for an estimated £170 million prize and the chance to have an early run in the Premier League, upset a major side, be top six by Christmas and then collapse dramatically into a grim battle for survival in the new year. One of Brentford and Fulham will receive that heady opportunity, but which? We'll be discussing that next. Everyone remembers that time you've had that peach of an accumulator looking good only for... Oh, and the keepers let it slip through his legs in the 94th minute. Or the right back has to pull on the gloves and face a penalty. Or Man United have again conceded a late equaliser. But with Paddy Power's Acker Cracker, you get a free bet if one leg of your fourfold plus Acker lets you down on all football matches and all markets. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10. Minimum odds of 1 to 5 on each leg. Online exclusive. Exclude shop bets. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeCumbleAware.org. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Listener, we're joined now by Billy Grant of the Besotted Podcast. Hello, Billy. Hello, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you for joining us. Also with us, Drew Heatley from the Fulhamish Podcast. Hello, everyone. Hello. Uh, of course, you guys are going to be head-to-head on opposite sides of the, the big divide come Tuesday night with the promotion playoff at Wembley. Drew, the, the joy of winning this game... You had it uh, in 2018. Is there anything like it in, in football in your experience? Honestly, there's there's nothing like it. I mean, we were lucky enough to have the Europa League final a decade ago, but I mean, that, that missed the fairy tale ending. The day out of Wembley last time with, you know, family and friends, some of whom aren't no longer with us. It was it was the best footballing day, the perfect day. And that's what makes this time round so strange. But behind closed doors, football is still football and it means everything on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Billy, the flip side, of course, is a team that can go to the playoffs eight times and never succeed. We played Stoke City at Cardiff in 2002. We were the first team to lose in the lucky dressing room. We played uh, we played Crew in 1997 um, and they finished sixth, we finished third and then we fluffed that one as well. And also Yeovil in 2013, we lost that one as well. So uh, we're not great at, uh, at playoff finals, eight played and eight lost so far but it's interesting you were talking about crowds and going down to Wembley I mean ironically I've literally just come back and I was actually hooked up with uh, the other two guys Sammy and Jack from Fulhamish and we actually had a drink on Wembley Way literally just now and we were sitting down there we did our co-podcast I was on the Fulhamish podcast they were on the besotted Pride of West London podcast as well and we were recording for a couple of hours enjoying ourselves talking football and just having a bit of a laugh and stuff and all of a sudden we looked around we thought 
actually, it's the conference playoff final between Harrogate and Notts County right behind us. And you would have had no idea it was going on. You had the buskers and tourists and people chatting. It was really, 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 really strange. So, uh, I mean, I think I've got my little Wembley fix there from going down there today. Um, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, listen, I've been to all eight of our playoff losses so far and it hasn't gone particularly well. So maybe on the flip side of it, actually me not being there might actually be a, a thumbs up for Brentford. They might actually do something this time. What do you make of Brentford's form coming into this game? Because the Bees rather choked in the final two games of the season. But then the second leg with Swansea was one of your finest performances of the campaign. I, I mean, I, I disagree to say that a team choked. I think all of a sudden, out of the blue, you know, we looked like we might get automatic promotion. When lockdown finished and we started our first game, which ironically, again, was against Fulham, we were 10 points away from West Brom. No one gave us a chance of doing anything but getting to the playoffs. So we won that game. We beat West Brom. Then all of a sudden, we'd won five, five matches, six matches. I was really relaxed coming out of lockdown because I didn't expect anything to happen. But then Swansea, you know, they had 12 men for that game. You know, 11 men and the referee, Keith Stroud. And uh, he, he he managed to give them, the th- you know, the win for that game. But we managed to turn it around for the other game. And we were, I just knew we were going to win that Swansea game because after the way that we had played, after the way that all the players are fired up. And I just thought, listen, we've got nothing to lose. Brentford are going to that game. Nothing to lose. We'll come into that and we'll be absolutely fired up. And the football we played in that Swansea game, uh, we'd be torn to bits, basically. And I think coming into that Fulham game off the back of that Swansea game is the best position we could be in. Drew, what concerns you most about Brentford on Tuesday? That they've uh, they've had our number this season. They've had our number uh, a few times in the last sort of five six years, more often than not. And look, they they play fantastic football. But I think what concerns me the most is what I think is probably their greatest strength at the moment. Could also be their greatest weakness is this this wave of emotion that they're riding on, similar to the way that we did under Slavica Ikanovic a few seasons ago. Uh, you know, they obviously have that momentum bar the couple of losses at the end of the season, but we we lost to Birmingham on the last day when we could have secured automatic. So it's very very similar and. You know, Billy says he knew that they were going to beat Swansea. Uh, Thomas Frank knew as well. And he, you know, he was very bolshy. And I think that could be the Achilles heel as well. This this wave of emotion that Brentford are riding on. Whereas alternatively, if you look at contrasting, if you look at Fulham this time round, you know, we're the wily veterans of the playoff four. And we certainly are in the, in the wily veterans of these of the final out of Fulham and Brentford. We've been there. We've done that. I think eight or nine players in, uh, in the, that were in the squad for the last championship playoff final are still in and around the first team squad now. So we've got that experience. And of course, Marek Rodak in goal uh, won a playoff final at Wembley with Rotherham a couple of seasons ago as well. I think maybe, maybe even last season. So we have we have that experience and I'm hoping that will be the difference maker come Tuesday. Drew Heatley uh, from Fulhamish Podcast and Billy Grant of Be Sotted. And as Billy was mentioning there, they've done a special joint. The, the two bitter rivals, Fulham-Brentford, have have come together to make a special joint podcast ahead of Tuesday's final. Drew was mentioning there Brentford's great record against Fulham. In fact, uh, in the regular season, two meetings, the most recent being 20th of June at Craven Cottage, which was the first fixture back after lockdown, and Brentford won that 2-0. And Michael Cox, you were there. I was, yeah. I think first uh, weekend of football after the lockdown. So, uh, yeah, it was um, a good game funny game where it kind of ebbed and flowed and I think both sides had their period of dominance but uh, Brentford the better side on that occasion they also won the uh, the previous meeting between the sides as Drew mentioned I think um, and I'd, I'd have them as favourites I think Brentford on their day just played brilliant football and I think they're slightly more of a cohesive unit than, than Fulham both with and without the ball so um, I, I quite like both sides and uh, wouldn't mind either of them coming up but I, I do think Brentford have probably got the edge James, you're rooting for Fulham, aren't you? Because great day out. <laughs> yeah, for the basic reason, I like being down the river there. I you know, like like the walk. I like the chance that opposition fans sing at Fulham fans. You know, you only drink white wine. That just, that sort of works for me. I like the rickety wooden stands. Yeah, it's... Uh, and, I, you know, I hope they do what they did last time in the event that they come up to the Premier League, which is completely blow up what got them there and go on a ridiculous spending spree and sign silly players. And uh, it'd be quite fun to fun to watch. So. Brilliant. Rafa, who, whose, whose colours will you be face painting with on Tuesday Ooh, night? I have a very soft spot for Brentford. Why? And I've even scored a goal uh, at Griffin Park. Why? Because um, I used to uh, work for Matthew Benham 
the owner. And and when did you score your goal at Griffin Park? And also, what um, did you do for Matthew Benham? So, you know, Matthew Benham, um, as you know, made his fortune with um, sports betting. And uh, in the past, I was providing some information on the Bundesliga for him. Nice. All right. When did you score your goal at Griffin Park? Yeah, there was a, uh, we had like kind of a, a company day out, I guess, of uh, people that work with him. And we're all, uh, we're all allowed to play at uh, Griffin Park. And uh, I scored a beautiful goal. I didn't do much else, but the goal Descri- was great. Describe it, Raf. What happened? <laughs> Um, so the ball bounced just outside the box, like in the D, and I took it as it was just on its way down again, kind of getting over it with the outside of the boot and just flew in. Top corner. It was just wonderful. Well, we can only hope that we see similar spectacle uh, this Tuesday between Brentford and Fulham. Next up, we've got to talk about some other big news from the weekend football. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Plenty of big stories in the world of football of late. Sunday afternoon saw Harrogate conquer a place in the Football League for the first time in over 100 years of history with a 3-1 win over Notts County at Wembley. Uh, Elsewhere uh, in Yorkshire football news, bad uh, tidings for Sheffield Wednesday, who've been handed a 12-point penalty for next season. This is over this business of them selling the stadium to themselves and then including the figures in their accounts. And uh, as I understand it, they're not the only club that's uh, facing charges over this. Derby County are certainly as well and one or two other clubs might be. But as I understand it, the big difference with Sheffield Wednesday was that they they sold uh, their ground to another company that the chairman owned. But then they entered the money that they received in the previous year's accounts, which does sound a little bit creative. Anyway, 12 points for next season. Crikey. Meanwhile, down in Bournemouth, club reeling post-relegation from the news that Eddie Howe has decided, uh, in conjunction with the club, that it's time for him to move on. The man who'd taken them from the brink of non-league football to the top flight and five mostly glorious seasons there. Uh, listeners writing in, Alex Cooney, with Eddie Howe gone, the second smallest stadium even in the championship and going from approximately 90% of EPL money on wages to parachute money, are Bournemouth in real trouble of being the next Leeds or Sunderland and dropping down again. Steve Malanga, meanwhile, asking how long has it been since a club with a, a smaller ground as Bournemouth stayed up in the first division for as long as Eddie Howe's team did? Well, yeah, there's the question of danger and there's also the... The view that we have these days of, of Eddie Howe, which I think maybe has been coloured a little bit by the deeply disappointing season that the Cherries had, but it was an extraordinary tenure that he had there. I think Eddie Howe and Bournemouth were victims of their own success uh, to a certain extent. Um, you, you kind of get used to the fact that they're there. They were always in the table sometimes, looking as if they could do a little bit better, but then ultimately sort of just being safe. And uh, every year you just think, OK, Bournemouth are Bournemouth and they're, they're going to be OK. And now I think it's seen as a disaster whereby actually, um, if you look at the size of the club, if you look at the uh, possibilities, the tradition or the metrics, um, KPIs that you can think of, it's perhaps not a surprise that a team like Bournemouth do go down. And uh, I think the problem that Eddie Howe has is that people remember now that he is the guy that got Bournemouth relegated rather the guy that managed to establish Bournemouth. I don't want to say against all the odds, but certainly with a very weak hand for such a long time. The other thing I think, which is a maybe an issue, I mean, some people have compared him to Jurgen Klopp in the sense that maybe he can come back from being relegated, having taken a very unfashionable club up and kept them up for for at least a bit. Um, some people have made the argument, you know, he can sort of um, emulate Klopp and now get a better job on, on the back of that. I think the only problem uh, there is that he just doesn't come across as a very charismatic figure. I think um, bigger clubs don't just want the football acumen, they also want a face, somebody that will represent the club, somebody that will sell the club to the public, to future or prospective players that are going to come in. And you just don't get that with with, um, with Eddie Howe. He's just so straight-laced and just batting. I don't know of any idea about cricket. I don't know what, what you say, straight batting, I think. Um, just so kind of matter-of-fact. <laughs> 
<laughs> that is the correct yeah. expression, yeah. no? That I think that makes him less less saleable, you know, as a as an asset. And I think that's that's the issue for him. Of course, part of the dismantling of, of Bournemouth has uh, already got underway with the forty one million pound move for Nathan Aki from Manchester City. Some people have expressed surprise at that valuation. Other people say it's a great deal. Michael, where do you stand on this? Uh, somewhere in between. I think he's a good player. He's not going to transform their defence. I'm not sure he'll necessarily be even a first choice. Um, there's some question about Laporte and him both being left-footed. And, OK, you can say you wouldn't have an issue with two right-footed players playing together at the back. But I think usually with right-footed players, one of them has some experience playing to the left because they are rare, so they have to slot in. So there's a slight issue with that. I think it's probably a worthwhile deal. Um, but like I say, I mean... I'm, I'm not sure that it's going to be a transformative signing. I think he'll slot in and probably do a decent job there. Well, as uh, as listeners were mentioning, there are difficult times ahead uh, for the club in their attempts to reclaim a place in the top tier. Still could be worse. They could be Newcastle, uh, whose long-suffering fans were greeted Thursday with the news that uh, the much-discussed takeover bid by Amanda Staveley's group was off again after the Saudis had withdrawn their interest five months of takeover talk on Tyneside going up in smoke. For us, this means war. Chris War, that is, who is the Athletics Newcastle correspondent and, of course, a voice of Pod on the Tyne podcast, and joins us now. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Amanda Staveley herself makes the suggestion that the Premier League was almost deliberately stalling to kind of bury the whole thing and not have to make a decision and kind of force the uh, Saudi investors to to walk away. Well, yeah, that, that she's made some quite strong allegations in, in an article my colleague uh, George Colkin interviewed her and her husband, Murdad Gadusi. And, and yeah, the, the, the consortium feel that the Premier League kept on. They, they talk about them shifting the goalposts repeatedly and just not even willing to give it a, a time frame on when they may have given an answer on when potentially they, they, they would have come back and said that, yes, either we will pass it or we will reject this. And it had been 16 weeks, but all parties have been told to begin with this. This process usually takes around four weeks. Obviously, this has become far more complicated. You've had the issues of piracy, human rights, everything, which has been well documented. But the Premier League, in my personal view, and I think a lot of people, certainly in the Northeast media and in general, feel that the Premier League should come out and at least explain what has happened over the last 16 weeks. Look, there's a lot of stuff which I'm sure is confidential and they might not be able to go into the specifics of some parts of it. But one of their 20 member clubs and the fans of one of their 20 member clubs who often get forgotten about, they're almost a disenfranchised sort of supporter. Are, they are the most important part of football yet they, they, they get so little actual ability to, to, to influence what goes on and, and they just want an explanation as to why this has happened over the last 16 weeks why they've been left with an owner who himself admits he wants to, to be out who was who, for once seems to have actually been someone who was was trying to facilitate this sale as well and yet Newcastle fans don't know why it dragged on so long they've heard from the prospective buyers they've made allegations the Premier League have refused to comment and I just think that what everyone wants is just some sort of closure on this is it is this the end is this never going to happen or is it why why is this not being possible to happen why why have these prospective owners not been able to take over Newcastle United and really just as is so often the case with unfortunately with this club we're just left with so many more questions than we are answers. The club, as you mentioned, has been through this so many times before, Chris. Is this time worse, though, than before? Yeah, this time does feel worse than before. I think for, for many reasons. I think that it, given that it's now 13 years or more than 13 years that Mike Ashley's been there, that just the length of time, is, it's all it's all kept adding up. And you have so many fans who, who feel apathetic. A lot of fans are starting to give up season tickets. Newcastle United had to give away 10,000 free half-season tickets in December because a club which is famous for turning up regardless, actually fans were stopping turning up and there's been so many sort of shadow takeover false takeover however however we want to look at it where they haven't actually come to fruition whereas this time it seems that Mike Ashley himself wasn't the problem we've had allegations in the past from including from Amanda Stavely herself the first time she tried to buy the club in November 2017 that he has been a difficult person to try and negotiate with I've heard that from other prospective buyers as well but this time he himself has actually come out and said no I I still want to sell I I, I am committed to selling Amanda Stavely herself has even said this time that he wasn't the problem 
problem, even though there was the chance that he tried to renegotiate the price. And so Newcastle fans have, have been through this for 16 weeks. The club has been in limbo in terms of the, the transfer window. How can they approach this? What was the budget going to be? Steve Bruce, the head coach, was in an almost impossible position. And I think that really the issue for Newcastle fans now, and the reason they do feel so deflated, is it's how it's it's that inability to see now where is the end for Mike Ashley? How does he leave his owner? Because you're in the middle of a global pandemic. It was bizarre in itself that the club could potentially have been taken over in a £305 million deal during the middle of, of what is a financial crisis around the world. And it's who is going to come in and pay that sort of money to Mike Ashley in this situation. And so it's that lo- loss of hope, I think, that, that really has affected Newcastle fans. And they're just, they're, they've fallen out of love with the club. They want someone to come in and, and give them that ability to be able to, to believe in them again. And, and at the minute, I just think with everything that's going on, on it, it's very difficult to see that far into the future. All right. I think a lot of people maybe outside the club, have, some have even welcomed this news because of the problems with the, the, the Saudi money. Is there any way that those closer to home might feel that in the long run this could even turn out better? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the Newcastle United Supporters Trust early on in this did a survey with supporters and I think it was close to 97% said they would be in favour of, of this consortium coming in but I don't think that is necessarily reflective of, of how everyone has felt throughout this. A lot of Newcastle fans have been extremely conflicted, some have been against it I wouldn't say that's a majority by any stretch, but there have been a lot who, who feel conflicted. I, as a reporter who covers a club, has felt conflicted about this, given uh, the atrocities of, uh, the, of the Saudi regime and, and all the uh, piracy and everything that comes comes with it, primarily the, the human rights. And yes, I, I can see that argument that maybe in the long term, would you want your club to be 80% owned by uh, someone who's closely linked to the Saudi regime? I, I just think that, that, that there's, there's a bit more nuance to this, just from a purely footballing point of view from, from Newcastle United fans. It was I think a lot of the excitement was about the fact that Mike Ashley was potentially going to be going rather than necessarily who was going to be replacing him and I can see why people would say well you you can't separate the two and yeah I understand that but just having been in the Tyneside bubble for the last 13 years, the, the frustration there is with Mike Ashley, the longing for him to go, I think that that is, that is part of the issue here. Maybe we look back on this in a few years' time if the club is taken over by someone else and say it was the lucky escape. I just think it at this very moment in time with it still raw and still unable to see beyond Mike Ashley, I just think it's difficult to, to view it in such a way at this very moment in time. You can hear more from Chris War on the Pod on the Tyne podcast. And they've certainly got lots to talk about at the moment. Very difficult times. I do appreciate, uh, I don't know what your, your feelings are on this, the frustration of Newcastle fans, but I'm not sure if I would necessarily single out the Premier League uh, as, as being the responsible one. I'm quite confused about why Amanda Staveley thought that pitching up with a consortium essentially funded by pirate money was going to be all plain sailing. Well, I suppose... Pirate money. (laughs) Pirate money. (laughs) Shiver me timbers. Uh Exactly. Um, I suppose she looked at um, other takeovers, not just in in the Premier League, um, yeah, that have been successful with with sovereign wealth money. Um, Yeah, but the question here being that that sovereign wealth money is tied in with a, a regime that's pretty much made, I wouldn't say an act of war, but they've certainly been in direct kind of conflict legally, economically, in all sorts of ways, ethically, even with, with one of the Premier League's biggest rights holders, being sports. That's true, James. But uh, yeah, that, that money also comes from lots of other areas, which I think have attracted fair scrutiny um, <laughs> over, over the, the course of this takeover. So you know, I, I think, uh, you know, quite rightly from a, an ethical and moral standpoint, um, yeah, there were questions as to whether... Uh, the Premier League should be uh, welcoming that kind of investment. Um, I sympathise with Newcastle fans. They clearly want a change of ownership. They clearly want to see the club, but also I think the city, and I think that's probably key as well in this, because you look at, say, what Manchester City owners have done for that, for the area around the Etihad, for that part of Manchester, uh, completely helped with its regeneration. There's an element of that in in wanting to see that for Newcastle and for, yeah, I think that's a general feeling across the north. But does that make it okay <laughs> to to have um, piff um, as, as 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 the people who are um, putting the money in? The be out issue was was the Achilles heel of the bid, and I think they perhaps underestimated uh, the people trying to buy the club. 
how sensitive the Premier League would be about this and how the bottom line and the way it would affect the other clubs would be a huge consideration. Perhaps there was a there was a view that another huge wealthy club being created would be overwhelmingly good for business so that we could ignore these other factors. But I think once a BN and the Qataris sort of started alerting um, clubs to the problem, it became very difficult, I think, for the Premier League to wave this through and to basically um, bite the hand that, that feeds feeds it to a certain extent in this area. Yeah, essentially indulge somebody who's been pirating the material of uh, one of the Premier League's biggest biggest yeah. partners. and, and uh, Non-original equally. pirate material. Yeah, very nice. <laughs> and the fact that there has been such a delay in this, I think, and, and now there's this decision, I think it's partly due to the fact that there was this World Trade Organization verdict which came down against the Saudis and people felt, well, this will be the moment that they'll take to distance themselves from B out Q, their pirate operation, and instead they took the opposite approach, and that's why, effectively. I think it, there was no way it, it, it could have gone through. But, uh, yes, a deeply frustrating time for Newcastle uh, supporters, and, and let's hope that there is something better around the corner. Around the corner for us, uh, listener, something very special indeed, because it's time to look ahead to the very exciting season finale that awaits us over the next few weeks. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on the Athletic app, this is the Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Starting this Wednesday, it's happening. The Champions League and the Europa League will be picking up where they left off before lockdown. We've got the remaining last 16 matches, the ones that didn't get played back in March. Then, from Monday the 10th, eight teams in Lisbon for a special Champions League mini-tournament, quarter-final, semis and final, straight knockout competition. And eight teams heading to Germany for the Europa League equivalent. Uh, listen, excitingly, we're going to be doing nightly shows here at Totally, uh, just like a regular summer cup competition, so you can get the latest news every morning, plus a look ahead to what the evening holds. For now, with Rafa, Michael and James... Uh, let's have a quick word about uh, what this week's games hold and what are the big uh, questions ahead of the final eight tournaments. What are you looking out for most this week, James? Well, for me, I think it has to be that Leon-Juventus game um, because I think a lot's riding on it. There are still doubts about the future of Maurizio Sarri at Juventus. And you know, whilst they uh, go into that game... Uh, match fit, uh, unlike Lyon, who you know they played the Coupe de la Ligue final and lost on penalties at the weekend. They still look a bit rusty, and I think all the pressure is ultimately on Juventus. Um, yeah, a team that is behind the goal in this tie, they've shown themselves unable to really defend um, convincingly so far this season. So the chances of Lyon, for example, getting a, an away goal, which would make it um, even more difficult for for Juventus to to overcome them and get into the quarterfinals. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting prospect, really, because you know, as with so many of the uh, the top sides in Europe's top five leagues, you know, in Germany, in France, and in Italy, um, ultimately seasons are decided by what the champions do in the Champions League. Um, and I think, you know, whilst the the club is kind of putting out a very united front, that um, don't underestimate how hard it is to win a league title. It was it was it was very interesting on on when was it Friday that Juventus unveiled Andrea Pirlo as their new under twenty three manager, and they had Andrea Agnelli the president beside him. They had Fabio Paratici the chief football officer beside him. Federico Cherubini, the kind of supervisor of the under twenty threes there. They had the head of comms there, and then when Marito Sarri spoke, um, what an hour or so later. Um, he was, you know, he wasn't there on his own, but there wasn't the same presence there. And uh, yeah, and Yelly in his his short address, you know, thanked the guys next to him, um, thanked the nutritionists, the kit men, but uh, you know, it was remarked on that he didn't he didn't seem to thank Maurizio Sarri for winning the league title. Um, maybe that's because he thought he didn't need to because it had already it had already been done. Um, but it, it did feel quite telling um, that he didn't. So uh, I think th- th- this is going to be very interesting. Uh, I think if, if if he wins the if he wins the tie and gets through, you know, you can you can pretty much look at who they're going to get in the next round, which will be one of City and Real Madrid, and say, yeah, that's difficult for whoever you are. But if you go out against Leon, 
<laughs> you know that is going to that is going to raise more questions um, on a mounting list of questions um, that have, have have been written up over the course of this season for Sarri. Mm. All right, for a Juventus team that, as it turned out, only won the Italian title by one point over Inter. Remarkable. Yeah, closest title race since two thousand two, James. You know those people who who keep calling it a farmers league. Well, <laughs> I mean to say to say they only won it one by one point and it was very close. I mean maybe overlooks the fact that it, it never really felt very close, but um, still certainly felt felt. Vincent but I thought that Christian Eriksen would be the missing piece for Inter when they bought him. Yeah, well, Raf. That has been, uh, I wouldn't say a disaster so far, but certainly reservations around where he would fit in um, to the tactical plan of a coach who predominantly has made his name playing three-five-two, you know, throughout his career. Uh, I think those reservations have been justified, and Eriksson has hardly played since the restart in the league. He did play well in 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 the cup semi-final, which you know, they ultimately lost. Um, to Napoli and then their first game back I think against Sampdoria but has been peripheral since then and Conte has kind of I mean I was just watching some of the pre-match build-up to today's games on Sunday as we record and uh, the sense that Eriksen's been kind of humiliated by being kind of brought on in the 89th minute (laughs) the 88th minute which is not something you necessarily do with a player who was who arrived um, as a star in January Um, but uh, Conte's got other problems at the moment. He went on one of his big, big rants um, yesterday. But so, I mean, that's another game I'll be looking out for, the Getafe game. Uh, mm, which, in given, the Europa League. Given Getafe have won two of their last 15 games, if, if Inter were to lose that, that would not be good either. Right. Uh, Conte telling his directors who financed the uh, remarkable spending spree that, that he went on, don't try and celebrate with me. Don't climb on this bandwagon. There's been no support. I'm not happy at all. Uh, yeah, and the key quote, James, me and the players have taken shovel loads of <laughs> over the last season, um, which, was, <laughs> which was pretty strong. Um, I, I would also say that uh, he did clarify he, he wasn't aiming those comments at the recruitment team. And I think there is a sense that they were aimed at the comms team at Inter in that too many leaks keep getting out and it makes his job difficult. And a a top club like Inter shouldn't be having to put out fires like whatever Marcelo Brozovic has done this week. Um, So, yeah, tension there. Will he be any happier when they buy him Leo Messi, do you think? (laughs) Yeah, that has been a... uh, a tormentone, as they say in Italy, it's 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 been a rattling on in the background ever since um, the Chinese rights holders um, of of Cydia, who 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 happen to be owned by Suning, uh, who the company that uh, controls Inter, basically projected an image of Lionel Messi onto the Duomo, um, which you know reading reading the tea leaves, of course, means that Inter are going to sign Lionel Messi, whose father Damn has deal. also. His father has just uh, uh, bought some real estate um, in in Milan, close to Inter's offices. Apparently, relocating business interests there for tax purposes, given that the uh, the Messi family uh, do have an Italian passport. Um, so you know, all roads lead to Milan, uh, James. So you know, expect you know we've been talking about Lautaro Martinez maybe going to Barcelona to play with Messi. It's clearly a straight swap. It's clearly a straight swap that's going on there. <laughs> Stranger things have happened. Cristiano Ronaldo going to Juventus uh, for one, so keep an eye on that over the uh, summer transfer window. But anyway, we were discussing the Europa League and, and Champions League. Uh, fixtures get underway on Wednesday. You've got the Europa League ones Wednesday and Thursday. Man United on Wednesday taking on Lance. They're uh, 5-0 up. Uh, they could be facing Wolves, actually, in the semi-final if they both get through. Wolves, though, are currently 1-1 against uh, the Greek side Olympiakos. Uh, well, Michael, what, what's caught your eye? What have you ringed in red uh, for your viewing pleasure this week? Uh, looking forward to actually the other game on Friday night. I think Manchester City-Real Madrid is very much still alive. City were impressive in winning away at the Bernabeu 2-1, but I still don't trust uh, Pep Guardiola's defence uh, in a Champions League situation. I think City um, will do well to keep clean sheets for the rest of uh, the Champions League campaign, so I wouldn't rule Real out of that one. And Barcelona and Napoli as well, all square. You know, Big question marks about Barcelona and whether they've got the... Uh, 
you know, basically just the quality to get through into the uh, into the semi-finals or the quarterfinals and then the semi-finals as you'd expect, really. Um, but I must say, I mean, looking further forward, I'm just quite excited by the one-leg nature of the quarterfinals and semi-finals. It's obviously something completely new for the Champions League. I think it will bring a slightly different dynamic. I hope the teams don't react to that and play too defensively. I hope they, you know, Atalanta against PSG, I think, is a game where all of us, aside from Jules, would like to see Atalanta go all guns blazing and <laughs> and really, uh, you know, demonstrate the idea that for a one-leg game, maybe it does favour the underdog. But yeah, I just think that'll be really interesting. And I'm, I'm just quite excited by this uh, almost condensed format. Just gives a kind of freshness to uh, the Champions League that maybe in recent years, you kind of think it's the same teams and the same kind of games. I think this will be something completely different. I mean, it was said slightly tongue-in-cheek earlier about this being a prelude to what a European Super League might look like. But yeah, the idea of having back-to-back games and particularly games on weekends in the Champions League. You know, you look at Saturday, for example, Barcelona, Napoli, Bayern Munich, Chelsea. I mean, that very much whets the appetite. I think, yeah, some of the executives who've entertained not a European Super League because that's not what they're trying to do, but reformatting the existing competition um, ahead of the the next uh, what when the rights are up in what 2024. I think they'll be watching how this is received and how it works very very keenly. Yeah, weekends weekends very much on UEFA's agenda, I think, especially when it comes to the latter stages. But of course, one-legged uh, games not on UEFA's agenda because they want more rather than fewer uh, games of the big teams playing each other. Um, but uh, like Michael, I'm really looking forward to Manchester City, Real Madrid. Um, I think the fact that there is no home advantage makes this much more open. The same is true of Barcelona, Napoli, and even uh, Mantis uh, against Lyon. I think all games where you would look at the traditional favourites, um, but perhaps have to mark them down to a certain extent because of the way the second leg works. Uh, Bayern, a Chelsea game that I'll be lucky to go to, actually, um, I think will be less dramatic um, than some of the other fixtures because of Bayern's 3-0 lead. But still interesting because you wonder what kind of attitude uh, Chelsea will go into this game with um, after the defeat in the FA Cup. They have lots of injuries that we talked about. Um, William also not there. Kante might not be able to, to play. And it's a thankless task, I think, to go to Bayern. Uh, but Bayern, with some issues of their own, they have to replace Benjamin Pavard, who's made the right-back spot his own. Um, he might not feature again at all in Champions League after hurting his ankle in a, in a warm-up game. And uh, the early indications from a game they played against uh, Marseille a couple of days ago was that uh, Joshua Kimmich will reprise his role as right-back. Uh, moving across from his uh, defensive midfield position with Thiago coming back in as a partner for Leon Goretzka. So still pretty impressive Bayern team, but um, we'll have to see if they can make it work over the course of the next few games once they overcome Chelsea, of course. It does sound like a a terrific uh, two and a bit weeks of competition, and it all starts on Wednesday. We'll touch a little bit on Wednesday's fixtures and look at a few more of your tweets in a moment or two. But first, here's Lee Price talking to producer Ben. Thank you very much, listeners. All together now, hello, Lee Price from Paddy Power. My, we've missed you. Lee, let's start, please, with the playoff final, the uh, most lucrative match in football, TM. Who is going to come out on top and join West Brom and Leeds in the Premier League next season? Crikey, really hard to tell after both teams went through two very different legs to get to the final. We make Brentford the favourites, but the not odds on, which is indicative of how close this is. Brentford are evens to win this game. Fulham 13 to 5, an extra time which every neutral secretly wishes for is 11 to 5. Okay, we're getting very excited about our daily Euro podcast that will be starting later on this week. Let's start with the, in no way, minor prize. Who is going to come out on top and win the Europa League this season? Not a lot of change in this one, actually. So maybe I'll start with uh, the outsiders. Rangers are 500 to 1. You can get Frankfurt at 175 to 1 or Copenhagen at 80 to 1. As for the top of the betting, well, you know how that looks. Man United are the favourites, 15-8, to eight, ahead of Inter, Leverkusen, Wolves and Sevilla. And finally, Lee, the big one. We don't know the final lineup yet, but as things stand, who is going to win the Champions League? 
Well, the big news flash here is that Man City are no longer the outright favourites. Okay, they're now the joint favourites instead. They and Bayern Munich are both 3-1. to one. Our partners likened Bayern, despite their lack of games over the last few weeks. PSG are 5-1. to one. Atalanta are 17-2, four favourites as it stands. Barcelona 9-1, to one, same price as Atletico. You're looking for an English club beyond City. Chelsea are 250-1 to one, and may no longer be in the conversation much longer. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Ooh, Scottish football's back on, everybody. Got back underway this weekend. The Toady Scottish Football Show is also back on. Ready to round up all the action news you need to know with Andrew Slaven. So get on that. As I say, we're starting Wednesday night. Our special nightly roundups. Uh, Wednesday's fixtures that we'll be reacting to include... The brand-new Turkish champions, hey, Basaksha here, they will be at Copenhagen, uh, nursing a 1-0 lead from the first leg. Uh, Wolfsburg will be looking to come back from 2-1 down against Shakhtar Donetsk. And Man United will be in action against Lask, Austrian side from Linz. They're, they're 5-0 up. What's, what's the big story there, do you think, Rafa? Well, I think the big story is uh, Wout Weghorst being so important for, for Wolfsburg. He is the man... Uh, he's scored all the goals. He's the man who's in a normal market would be attracting a lot of demand, especially from sort of mid-sized um, clubs and, and clubs who want to uh, perhaps target the Europa League places in, 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 in big leagues. A real chance, I think, for the club and for him to make the most of what is going to be a pretty big spotlight. I think the fact that there will be games on after the last 16 that you, you'll, you'll have a whole evening to yourself effectively as a team that otherwise wouldn't command the same attention is a huge boon. And Wolfsburg, I think, have an outside chance of, if not winning this competition, at least sort of going into the semi-final and, and, and maybe final because they are pretty solid and they score goals and they're a team that um, I think going to make it difficult. Uh, but they, of course, have to overcome Schachter after that uh, 2-1 deficit. Wolfsburg, who let Victor Ossiman go to Charleroi for little or no money, who's just moved to Napoli for 81.5 million. Um, and the sell on clause, well, I think was it 5 or 10% the money going to Charleroi. So I'd say Wolfsburg have had a bit of a nightmare there. Yeah, and a shame that Ossiman can't actually feature uh, in Napoli's end of season this time around, particularly with Insigne potentially being out of the Barcelona tie, James. Yeah, he pulled up injured um, in uh, Saturday night's uh, win uh, at the San Paolo. And he didn't look good at all, um, sort of grimacing, sort of, you know, sort of hobbling off the pitch. So I think it's it's going to be a big doubt. Although Dries Mertens can play on the left-hand side, they can play Arcadius Milik through the middle uh, with, with Cajon on the right or whoever they want to go with. So they've got a lot of versatility um, up front. But in senior, it is a blow, James, because he's been reborn uh, really since Gattuso um, took over. Gattuso's made uh, him more of a focal point than he was under Ancelotti where he kind of lost his way. Remember in the group stages he was being left in the stands for games against you know one of those Belgian teams. I can't remember whether it was Brugge or Genk um, or Ghent even. It could be any one of them. Uh, it, feels like <laughs> such a long t- it feels like such a long time ago now. Um, but yeah, no, that is a blow um, even though Mighty Dries, Chiro Mertens can probably do the business at the camp now. Rafa, you were talking about Vote Veghorst's uh, prospects of uh, earning himself a fat transfer. Uh, Danny Daly asking, what's your take on the Sancho situation and who has the better poker hand, Dortmund or Man United? I'm not sure it's a case of who's got the better poker hand because the price is is clear. Um, it's a question of whether Man United want to pay it or not. Um, so far, the indications are that they feel they can perhaps get a better deal if they drag this out away. Dortmund are adamant that this is the price, 120 million euros, and it has to be done by the 10th of August. It's, I think, going to be difficult to climb down from that after having made you know both these demands financially and in terms of the timing of the potential deal uh, so public and tying themselves to it. So um, if United think they can still make it happen without uh, paying the price and without meeting Dortmund's deadline, that... They can try, but I think Dortmund have made it uh, quite obvious what they feel needs to be done for the deal to go through. And I think it's 
the way they see it, the, the ball is in United's court to see if they want to make it happen or not. They've been very clear. Right. So, What do you think is going to happen, Rafa? I think if United, for whatever reason, cannot or do not want to spend that kind of money this summer, thinking that next summer is going to be a, a more normal market and, of course, his valuation will go down, having only one year left on his contract, then that could still be the outcome. But there's every chance that they will try again, uh, if not now, then maybe in September or even in early October, uh, with the window being open and perhaps where whereby we're all in a position where we know exactly or have mo- a better view, shall I say, about where things are going in terms of uh, crowds being let in. Um, at the moment, everyone's trying to work out how big the financial hit is that they're taking. And I think for for clubs like Man United, it's very difficult to pull off a transfer of this magnitude, even for them. So they might just disregard Dortmund's valuation and their, and their, their deadline and say, we're just going to keep trying, um, thinking that we have a good chance. But Dortmund could do the same. And I think if you ask me personally, I think there is a deal to be done and I think eventually it will go through, but eventually it could also mean in January or maybe only in next summer. Michael, are you a big fan of Jose Maria Callejon? Um, I quite liked him two or three years ago. Yeah, why? <laughs> no, just because he's probably played his last game for Napoli. I know that you you do you are quite partial to a bit of City, and I I got quite emotional over that because it, he's been one of my favourite Napoli players, and it's a shame that he he's he's probably moving on now. Is that right, James? From the San Paolo Napoli with a three-one win over over Lazio there on on Saturday night which uh, featured Chido Mobile equaling Gonzalo Higuain's 36 goals in a season. A record yeah, established at the San Paolo itself. Taking the golden boot from uh, mm. Robert Lewandowski as well. Oh, yeah, that's uh, true. First Italian to win it since Totti in 2006-07. It's the, the highest ever um, individual total that a Italian player has racked up in City as well. And he perhaps would have broken that record um, had he not been so generous in giving away some of the many penalties uh, he's he's got this season, because he scored, I think, was it 13 or 14? Um, I think he gave one to Luis Alberto early in the season. I think he's given one to Caicedo. If he hadn't done that and he had scored them, he would have been alone in in history. But um, remains a great a great achievement from Immobile, even though he still has his skeptics out there. I'd say more on social media than 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 in reality. Who who seem to remember his Dortmund and Sevilla days over what he's done in Serie A, which one the Capitanieri crowned three times, James, which again puts him in very uh, exclusive company. All right, and Callahan is he moving on? Yeah, I think this is the feeling is that he is um, at this moment in time. I think he's had offers to go back to Spain. Um, offers from MLS as well. Um, I know that Dries Mertens has been doing his best to try and persuade the club um, to extend his contract, but um, it looks like um, Napoli are moving on. Um, They've already got other players, younger players in his position, but very much part of what the best front three Napoli have had since uh, Maradona, Giordano and uh, Careca, the Magica trio with uh, what Mertens, Insigne and Cajon. Wonderful trio to watch, particularly on the Sarri. And, and also on the transfer front and, and uh, touching on Lazio, the, the team beaten by Napoli Saturday night, are they signing David Silva? Well, they're having a go. Um, I think it'll be very difficult for them to persuade Silva to, to join the club. Um, I think Silva's intentions are to go back to Spain. But, you know, I think it shows the kind of ambition that uh, that Lazio have. You know, in terms of star power, the league has, has gone old, you know, in terms of let's bring Ronaldo here, let's bring Ribéry here, let's bring Ibrahimovic here, uh, now Silva, um, in the event that they were able to do that. But I, I don't think they will. I think um, uh, I think ultimately Silva's, yeah, his intention to, well, in leaving City, it will be to go home, I think. All right. Just, just messy for next summer then. Okay. So, just messy, yeah. 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 And now, meantime, one other story we're getting asked about a lot uh, by listeners is the business with Paul Yusuf Ilicic, who's not been featuring or didn't feature for Atalanta for the end of this season, has returned to Slovenia for personal reasons. All sorts of wild stories flying around uh, about him. It's certainly true that uh, he doesn't seem to be in a particularly 
good place right now and is, uh, I believe, extremely unlikely to feature in Atalanta's Champions League clash with PSG, James. Yeah, he won't. The season's finished for uh, Josip Ilicic. He's on compassionate leave um, in Slovenia at the moment. Um, yeah, Atalanta have given him their kind of full support. Um, there are a lot of rumours around on social media in particular and a lot of people wanting to know whether they're true. I think that's just respect the privacy of the player. Um, you know, from my experience of Josip Ilicic, he is um, yeah, quite a sensitive individual. He was uh, very moved and upset uh, when his teammate Davide Astori passed away. Um, yeah, he feared for his life when it was at the beginning of of last season when he had a kind of bacterial infection in his in his neck and ended up going to hospital and having seen what happened to our story, didn't know what was going to happen there. And I think yeah, living in Bergamo throughout this period has been has been trying uh, for him as well. And the club are, are sensitive to that. So um, wish him all the best um, because I, for me, he's been the best player in City A this season, um, without doubt. In fact, I was... <laughs> I was writing a up interview for the Athletic this week um, with Ismail Benacer, and I, I, I ended up watching back some of the highlights from Atlanta's five 0 win against AC Milan in December, um, and just what a player! I mean, not many people can do what Ilicic um, can do. It's a shame he won't be there against PSG, but you know, first and foremost, his personal well-being, and uh, yeah, we uh, send our wishes to him, James. Certainly do. Of course, it was he who put Atlanta into. Uh, the last eight with that extraordinary four goal haul in the last 16 against Valencia remarkable stuff uh, well best wishes to him and, and of course to Atlanta in that massive game with the PSG one of the many delights coming up in the return of the European Cups we'll be back as I say on Wednesday night uh, reviewing the three games uh, played then and looking forward to Thursday's action and beyond do join us for that should be with you Thursday morning. For now, though, it's many, many thanks to Raphael Honigstein, to Michael Cox, James Horncastle, producer Charlie, and you, listener. Have yourselves a great time until we're with you again. For now, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter, and make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees Media.